Do you cherish the fact that Jesus was rejected? Kind of a trick question. On the one hand, yes, we do cherish that Jesus was rejected. In fact, we sometimes sing about it. We have a song, I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I trust you know that hymn. So there's a sense in which we do cherish the fact that Jesus was rejected. But also, there's a part of that answer in which, in which we, we might say no. We don't cherish that Jesus was rejected. Isaiah's words haunt us in Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one with whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Although it seems Isaiah is speaking about someone in the past, using the past tense there, he was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah spoke these words as a promise of something yet to come, as a prophecy about something from his perspective that was to come. He's making a prophecy that Messiah Jesus will be despised and would be rejected, and we know that he was. Now, just stop and think about that for a minute. How would it feel, how would you feel, if before you were born, this prophecy, or this banner, you might say, was flying over your head? Before you even came into the world, it was proclaimed about you, that you would be despised and rejected by men, that you would be forsaken. If I had to guess, you probably wouldn't like it. It wouldn't thrill your heart to know that that, was, that would be your plight, your story. Well, what's the point? Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to see some of the rejection that Isaiah speaks of. Of course, the closing scene of his rejection we know is the cross of his cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the final kind of picture that Isaiah is giving us there in Isaiah 53. But this morning we'll see kind of a, a lesser scene, you might say, of that rejection. And there are plenty of those scenes, these scenes of rejection that lead up to that final closing scene. But this morning, as I said, we'll see one of those. We'll see the rejection of the shepherd. If you would please stand, we'll read our passage of Scripture. It's John chapter 10, verses 31 through 42. John 10, verses 31 through 42. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of whom, him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, 
They sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's the big idea of our message this morning. Three scenes of rejection summon us or will summon us to accept the shepherd. Again, three scenes of rejection summon us to accept the shepherd. I'll give you the title of each of these, these scenes up front. The first is the charge. That's in verses 31 through 33. The challenge in 34 and 38, through 34 through 38. And finally, we'll see the consequence in 39 through 42. Those will be the three scenes that we'll look at this morning. We'll start with the charge in verses 31 through 33. As the first scene opens, we find ourselves in the middle of a confrontation. They picked up stones again to stone him. This is the kind of confrontation that looks like it could end in a death. That's what they're after. They're trying to kill Jesus. They picked up stones and they're looking at Jesus, and of course, they're picking these stones up to kill Jesus because if you look just ahead there, just one verse before, in verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is claiming there that he, is, he has the same action as his Father in uh, protecting the sheep. That, that way, no one will snatch them out of his hand, and so he says, I and the Father are one. We looked at that last week. This isn't the first attempt that the Jews made on Jesus' life. You might remember in John chapter 8, a similar thing happened where they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. It was in that context, Jesus had declared, before Abraham was, I am. He was again counting himself as equal with God, and they immediately picked up stones to try to kill him. Both there in chapter 8 and here in chapter 10, the Jews employ a kind of lynch law against Jesus. They are not interested in any due process of the law. They, and the charge of their lynch law apparently is blasphemy. They see that, say that Jesus is committing blasphemy. Now, you might recall in the previous attempt to stone Jesus that he was able to hide himself. He escaped uh, possibly miraculously. We don't exactly know how he escaped, but he was able to escape in John chapter 8. Eventually in this chapter, he will escape, but before he escapes, he actually offers a response to these Jews. I imagine this would be a very tense moment, something like speaking to a person who has a gun to your head. And so Jesus responds. Look at verse 32, I think it is. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? This is the response from Jesus. Jesus appeals again to the good works of the works that he has committed. You remember in verse 25, he did something similar. Verse 25, he says, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So again, he is appealing to his works. His works give testimony. They bear witness about who he is, that he is one with the Father. Another way to ask this question in verse 32 that Jesus asked, 
might be something like this. Does any good work that I have, that I've shown you, contradict my assertion that I and the Father am one? Was it the fact that I healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years? Is that a good work that contradicts that I and the Father am one? Or maybe was it that I healed a man who was blind from birth? Does that somehow contradict the fact that I am one with the Father? Of course, there's nothing they could say against such good works. Even these Jews aren't so foolish to suggest that such things are evil. They, in fact, are good were good things that Jesus was doing. So they clarify their position in verse 33. They say, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, they said, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now we can see their logic. We see their position. They're separating the words and the works of Jesus. They're separating the two. Now, in the ministry of Jesus, and in fact, in all gospel ministry, works are never an end unto themselves. They always have a a purpose. They serve as proof of person. People do works, and it's a testimony to who that person is and that their message ought to be believed. That's how works, signs and wonders work in the Bible. And it's always been this way. In fact, it was this way all the way back to Moses' day. You might recall when Moses is commanded by God to go to Pharaoh, he questions whether or not Pharaoh is going to believe Moses' words. How will he know that you told me to come tell you to let the people go? Do you remember what God did there? Moses questioned God, and, and God told him, throw your staff on the ground. And what happened to the staff? Turned into a serpent. He told him, put your hand in your, your coat, your cloak, and pull it out. And he pulled it out and it was full of leprosy. Do you remember that? He put it back in, he pulled it out and it was clean. And God says, if he won't believe you, if he still won't believe you, we'll take some water from the Nile, pour it out, and it will turn to blood. So all of this is to demonstrate before Pharaoh that you should believe his message. Look at the miracles that he's doing. You must believe his message. Of course, there are plenty of other miracles that Moses was a part of, namely the plagues that uh, were a part of the land over the land, demonstrating that Moses should be believed and that, in fact, his God was greater than Pharaoh's God. And so we know that all these works, many more, performed by Moses in order that Pharaoh would believe the words of Moses. Again, you cannot separate the works from the words of the prophet, you might say. So when we think about signs and wonders in the Bible, from Moses to Jesus, signs and wonders are servants of the message, servants of the messenger. And so this is the logic behind John's entire gospel. That's what John is doing in his gospel. He's giving us these signs so that we would believe. You remember the purpose of John, John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He performed many other miracles that are not recorded here. But these ones are written, it says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the logic of the book. 
Look at these miracles. Look at these signs. Don't separate this, the words from the works of God. Believe based on those works, based on what God and Jesus has done, have done. And so, we think about these Jews who were rejecting Jesus. Really what they should have done is, is to pause and think a little bit about Jesus. To think about the fact that for 30 plus years, as they walked through the sheep gate, they saw a man laying there who was paralyzed. They knew that man. And all of a sudden, he was healed. They should have considered the man who was blind from birth, who came, they, they sent to come in, and, and they verified that man was actually blind from birth because we talked to his parents. We confirmed the fact that, that he was blind from birth. He himself said, no one has ever heard of a man being healed who was born blind. No one has ever heard of that, such a thing happening. I'm sure they heard about the water that he turned to wine at some point, even if they weren't at the wedding. I'm sure they heard about the 5,000 plus people that ate from a little boy's lunch sack. Surely they would have known about that. Maybe they even heard rumors that he walked on water. They should have stopped and to think a little bit about, wait a second, should we believe the words of Jesus? Of course, they don't. And instead, they separate his words from his good works. And in some ways, they concede, they, they can't deny that he does good deeds. And that's why they say, look, we're not saying, we're not dealing with that right now. This is why we're trying to stone you, because you committed blasphemy. You make yourself God. So that's the issue they take up with Jesus. He's making himself one with God. Now, Jesus is going to respond to this challenge in verses 34 through 38. We're not surprised that this is a challenge to believe. It's what Jesus wants them to do, is to believe that he is one with the Father, that he is the Messiah. The challenge has two parts. The first is found in verses 34 through 36, and the second is in 37 through 38. We'll look at both of them. If you're taking notes, this would be 2A, an appeal to Scripture. This is the first part of this challenge, an appeal to Scripture. Look at verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came... And Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now we have to acknowledge in reading these verses up front that this is somewhat difficult to understand. These, these verses are not intuitive. It's not entirely clear up front what Jesus is getting at here. What is likely most difficult to understand about Jesus' argument is that he seems, seems to suggest that the Bible, in another place, calls Jewish men gods. And if the Bible can suggest or call them gods, then why can't Jesus call himself God? Seems to be the logic here. But, however, why would the Bible call men gods? What's that about? And if it does, in what sense might men be considered gods? Does that appear to be the problem from these verses? I think so. So first off, we have to 
notice when Jesus used the word, uses the word law here, he is really referring to the whole Old Testament. The word law there can refer to just the Pentateuch, that'd be the first five books of the Bible, but it can also refer to the whole entire Old Testament. If you want a verse for that, you can look at John 12, 34 and John 15, 25, or two examples where Jesus uses the word law and it refers to the entire Old Testament. So, Jesus doesn't quote from the Pentateuch. He doesn't quote from the first five books of the Bible. He actually quotes from the book of Psalms. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 82. Psalm 82, 6 says, I said, you are God's. So Jesus says in verse 34 there, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law in the Old Testament? I said, you are God's, quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. If you want, we'll go over to Psalm 82 and we'll look at it. If you put a finger there, you can move over there and we'll read Psalm 82 so we can put what Jesus is saying here in John 10 in its appropriate context. Psalm 82, verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. There's the verse. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men... You shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Psalm 82. Psalm 82 here is a psalm, as we see, about unjust judges. That's what the psalm is about. Verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly, it says. This song is a, a psalm is a warning to those unjust judges. It's a call to those who judge to cease from their unjust ways. So it says in verse 3, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, a call to rescue the weak and the needy, to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is what this psalm is calling for these judges to do. And this role, in this role of providing judgment over men, it is so significant, according to this psalm, that God actually calls those judges gods. Not with a big G, as you can see, but with a little g. They're a kind of God. They are gods, sons of the Most High. These judges who are commissioned by God in Israel to bring aid and justice to men, being commissioned by God for such a task, they were gods to men. That's what this Psalm 82 is demonstrating. And thus, the title God applied to the judges as they exercised their God-given office. Now, let's go back to John 10 and look at that. We can kind of put this together here. Look at verses 35 and 36. If he called them gods, those unjust judges, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him whom the father, the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? I think you can probably see some of the logic. Jesus' point is this. If scripture calls mere men gods who were commissioned by God for a task to be judges, how much more should I be called God who is commissioned by the father and sent from the father? Far from classing himself among men or classifying himself with men, Jesus isn't doing quite that. He's doing something different. He is really arguing kind of a how much more argument. It's, a, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If that, if that could happen with mere men who are just, their judges in Israel, how much more should I call myself God being sent from God, being consecrated by the Father? And so it's a how much more kind of argument. Jesus' argument is this. Scripture calls men commissioned by God, gods. Well, I, Jesus, I have been uniquely consecrated, uniquely commissioned by God. Therefore, it's right for me to say, I am the Son of God. That's what Jesus is doing in these verses. Now, this argument might be strong enough. It's a good argument. But there's another layer to the argument. And it's this, Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. That's the other layer of his argument. Scripture cannot be broken. Now, this sentence in our translation, in the ESV translation, is a parenthetical statement. The ESV does that with those hyphens on each side. I don't know what translation you're looking at, but some of the translations actually have it in parentheses. It's a parenthetical statement, which essentially means you could read the sentence, you could just remove it, and the sentence would still make sense. That being said, it is really the major premise of Jesus' argument, and we shouldn't reject it at all. We should consider it as very significant to his argument. For if if the Jews didn't have a high view of Scripture, if they thought that Scripture could be broken, then his argument would mean nothing. The grounds by which his argument stands or falls is based on the major premise that Scripture cannot be broken. That's the presupposition. That's where it all begins. Scripture cannot be broken. Under that, the minor premise, you might say, in Jesus' argument is that Scripture calls men who are commissioned by God, gods. So major premise, Scripture cannot be broken. Minor premise, Scripture calls men commissioned by God, gods. There go, or ergo, therefore, you might say, Jesus, commissioned by God, is rightly called God. This is his argument in summary. Now, it's hard to feel the weight of such an argument in our day, but before these Jews, these Jewish rabbis, as I understand the way that they taught and the way that they argued, this would have been totally in line with their kind of logic. This would have been exactly the kind of tool they would have used to make their points. And so, kind of using their own way of thinking, basically they're beat. What could they say? He appealed to Scripture. Scripture can't be broken. It says that men commissioned by God are gods. Well, I'm calling myself the Son of God. Look at my works. What are you going to say? Can't say anything. He has them beat. Now, before we move on or move away from that point, we should pause, I believe, and take up something about these, this phrase that Jesus uses, and Scripture cannot be broken. 
It is a fascinating testimony to the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture that's found in this passage. What's most interesting, I think, about this is what Jesus is speaking about when He says this. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that you might suspect Jesus to say Scripture cannot be broken and then quote maybe Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments or maybe the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Some like really, really important, you know, passage of Scripture. But He actually doesn't do that. He says Scripture cannot be broken and then forgive me, I mean no disrespect, but this is kind of an obscure psalm, is it not? I mean, how many people have Psalm 82 memorized? How many of Awana verses came from Psalm 82? Probably not many. And so you might say it is kind of a run-of-the-mill kind of passage. And again, I mean no disrespect. B.B. Warfield made a similar point in his book, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. I highly recommend it. He writes this, he says, Now what is the particular thing in Scripture for the confirmation of which the authority of Scripture is thus invoked. And what he's saying in asking that question is, what is it in Scripture, what does Scripture do to testify about itself? What kind of passage does it use to, to, to argue that it is, that it has authority? Well, he says it's one of its most casual clauses. That's his way of saying it's kind of an ordinary passage. It's a casual clause. This means, of course, he says, that in the Savior's view, the indefectible, the perfect or faultless authority of Scripture attached to the very form of expression of its most, again, casual clauses. So in the simplest, darkest corner, you might say, of Scripture, every little bit of Scripture has that same banner that flies over its head. Scripture cannot be broken. None of it can be set aside is kind of an implication of what Jesus is saying here. He says, he continues, Warfield, it belongs to Scripture through and through down to its most minute particles that it is of indefectible authority, perfect, faultless authority, down to its minute particles in its most casual clauses, in its most ordinary psalm, as I've said. The fact that Jesus used an obscure passage also teaches us that the idea that Scripture cannot be broken wasn't an isolated opinion. It wasn't something that just, you know, some, some of the most religious Jews believed. This was a, a belief across the board. It wasn't an isolated opinion. It was, it was representative of their understanding they saw Scripture, the Jews saw Scripture as indefectible, to use Warfield's adjective. We know Matthew 5.19, it's relevant here. Jesus said, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, the nature of Scripture is that even the least of the commandments is to be obeyed. 
While Scripture does speak of a greatest commandment, we know that. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. That's the greatest commandment, it says. None of the commands are to be disregarded. None of them are to be set aside. Maybe your translation actually says that. Scripture cannot be broken. Another way of translating that would be Scripture cannot be set aside. None of it can be set aside. Remember what Paul told the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. By implication, the apostolic model, Paul's model that he gives us, is not to pick and to choose what to be taught or what should be taught, but to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. Even the things I don't like. All of it. None of it should be set aside. It cannot be broken. Even such an obscure passage as Psalm 82, verse 6. Jesus employs it to prove his argument. Jesus, James warns us, you know this verse, James 3, 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why is it that teachers are judged with greater strictness? Because those who teach are accountable for those whom they teach. They will give an account. Understand these truths about Scripture, about teaching. They're not just for pastors. They're not just for elders. They're not just for Sunday school teachers. But they're for all of us. They apply to every one of us. Wherever we find ourselves in the body of Christ, put it this way, we're either helping our brother or sister become more obedient to Scripture or less obedient to Scripture. The question is, in your life as you interact with the body of Christ, are you helping your brothers and sisters be more obedient to what Scripture says? Or, or less, or more disobedient to what Scripture says? God forbid. Each of us is called to teach each other. And so that's the question to you, to us question that I ask myself. Am I helping you become more obedient to what Scripture says? What is the Great Commission? That, they, that we would make disciples by baptizing them and doing what? We don't like this part. Teaching them to obey all that I commanded. That's our call, to follow what Jesus said. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Someone asked me after service last week, how do I know if I love Jesus, the most simple answer that I know to give you is, do you do what he says? I don't know of a simpler answer. Jesus makes it that simple for us. John MacArthur says, when we ignore its demands, that is, Scripture's demands, when we ignore its demands, we give loud testimony to its unimportance to us. You know, I, I, would suggest, I, would, I would think that most of us wouldn't talk down about Scripture. If I had you raise your hand, you know, do we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture? Do we value it in our lives? I'm sure all of us would give a hearty amen. Of course we would. 
The question is, is in those interactions with people, are we putting our money where our mouth is, so to speak? Are we actually sharing what Scripture says? Do we say, yes, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but then I give you my opinion? We don't want to do that. We want to, what does Scripture say? What is commanded? Paul wrote, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's God's breath. It's God's breath. It's profitable. It's good for something, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So important. So that the man of God, the man or woman of God, might be perfect, complete, teleos. That we might be perfect, he says, lacking, equipped, excuse me, for every good work. I told you there are two parts to Jesus' argument. That's the first part. He appeals to Scripture. There's a second part of his argument, and it is the appeal to works. If you're taking notes, again, this would be 2B, if you care. (laughs) An appeal to works. This is the second part, again, verses 37 through 38. Jesus said, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. These, are a direct, these words are really a direct challenge, finally, to these Jews, the, the challenge that was given in verse 33. Again, again, these Jews want to separate the words and the works of Jesus. What's kind of interesting about this Uh, from Jesus is he offers almost a kind of compromise here a little bit. Even if these Jews can't bring themselves to believe the words of Jesus, at the least, they might bring themselves to believe the works. He does a similar thing in John 14, verses 10 and 11. You can write that down if you want. He makes a similar kind of argument. His point is this, how we come to believe that Jesus is one with the Father is less important than the fact that we have actually come to believe that Jesus is one with the Father. Whether we hear the words and we believe just based on the words alone, or we see His works and believe, whatever it is, the point is that we believe. So you might say, obedience out of inferior motives is better than outright disobedience. It's the kind of logic that Jesus is using here. That being said, a tree is judged by the quality of its fruit, is it not? If we stumble over the words and look only at the works, well, those very works will compel us to take a fresh look at the words. At least they ought to. Whatever judgment we have made about the tree, the sweetness of the fruit will compel us to take another look. I don't know if that's true or not, Ben, but I imagine if that tree is producing good almonds, it'd be really hard to cut it down, even if it looked lousy. (laughs) You might say, well, that thing looks bad, but hey, maybe we should take account for it, consider it. And Jesus' challenge to them is to believe the works in order that they might know and understand, it says, that they might know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That they might come to realize, that's the idea of to know, it's that aha moment, 
that they might know and then they might understand. They might keep on knowing, keep on believing. Both is what Jesus is calling. To have a singular moment of belief, a singular moment of insight, an aha moment, and then to remain permanently in that, the knowledge that that moment brought, to know and to understand. And so, Jesus has issued a challenge to these Jews. He's appealed to Scripture, and He's appealed to His works. Both offer proof that Jesus is one with the Father. Verses 39 and 42, we have the closing scene. I've already given you the title of it. We saw the charge and the challenge. Here we see at the end the consequences, the consequences. Verses 39 through 42. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Many believed in him there. The challenge from Jesus to believe is rejected. In seeking to arrest him, they, they likely intended to bring him before the Sanhedrin to have him formally tried. Why they, they moved from trying to stone him and they kind of set that aside and, and now they're trying to arrest him, I don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us why they kind of softened there. Um, but either way, he was able to escape their hands and so he got away. Verses 40 through 42 give us this closing scene of John 10. And we have here kind of a minor bookend, you might say, to the first major section of John's gospel. In these first 10 chapters, Jesus has primarily come to his people. Remember John 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. We see the stubbornness of God's people in many places in Scripture. You probably know Isaiah 65 I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. A picture of God is of Him holding His hands out to His people that they would come to believe in Him, that they would accept Him. Jeremiah 7 talks about His people, Israel, being stiffened in their neck. They're a stiff-necked people. I believe John is kind of picking up a little bit on this theme as John 10 closes. In his own way, of course, Jesus has spent two years ministering to the Jewish people. And in many ways, Jesus attempted to show them that he was the Son of God. We've reviewed these over the last year. You remember in John chapter 2, as we began, he took jars used for ritual purification and he turned water into wine. He showed the Jews that the, the old purification rites would no longer be needed. You remember he cleared the temple out. Remember that? He taught them that they would no longer need a building to meet God, that He would be their temple. In John 3, he told a Jewish rabbi, a teacher of Israel, he told him, a man named Nicodemus, that God's people must be born from above. Of course, Nicodemus should have understood that. In John 4, Jesus went to a sacred well. He went to Jacob's well. He declared himself to be the true and living water. Jesus is trying to show the Jews that neither old jars 
nor an elaborate temple, neither rabbinic teaching nor a sacred well can provide eternal life. Jesus doesn't stop there as we continue to progress through the book. Jesus declared his superiority over the Sabbath in John 5. He proved that he is Lord of the Sabbath by healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. In John 6, he declared himself to be the fulfillment of the Passover by providing bread for 5,000. He is the new Moses. The Feast of Tabernacles, a festival filled with imagery of water and light, Jesus declared himself to be the water of life and the light of the world. And finally, in John 10, the Feast of Dedication, a feast that was not in the Old Testament, but was a kind of a newer feast that was, that was designed to commemorate the, the military victory of Judas Maccabeus, Jesus declares himself that he is more than a new Maccabeus. He's not just some military leader. He's telling us in John 10 that he is one with the Father. He's shown him the Jews in all of these ways that he should be believed, that we should believe in him, that they should believe in him, but yet he was rejected. And in verse 39, they sought to arrest him. Two years of ministry, all of these truths in front of them. And so you have kind of a minor bookend. I call this a minor bookend because the major bookend of this first section is really in John chapter 12, which is a very similar idea. It's in John 12, verse 36, about the middle of the verse there. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Powerful words. They could not believe similar to the words of John 10, 26 we saw last week, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep, Jesus told them. So the words of Isaiah, where we started, they ring true. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. As John 10 closes, we're given a picture of Jesus that is one of retreat. The offer of salvation has been given by the shepherd, and God's people have rejected their shepherd in this passage. So what is there to learn from the rejection of Jesus and his retreat? Well, the first thing we should notice, we should say, is that this isn't Jesus running away. I don't want you to hear me say that. I'm not saying Jesus is running away from his problems. He's certainly not doing that. Rather, I think what Jesus is doing by stepping away is preparing himself for something greater. He's preparing himself. Something lies ahead. Scripture talks about the hour of Jesus. It's a little phrase, a little one word, really, that we use, Jesus uses, to capture that time in which he will die. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus prays to the Father, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? He offers the question, Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour, Jesus said. The hour, of course, is the hour of his death. It's a way of capturing 
the death of Christ in his hour. And so it wasn't his hour. And so he left and he went across the Jordan. I don't know if Jesus was searching for a new beginning. I like to think that Jesus might have been tremendously discouraged by what's taken place. He wanted his people to believe. He appealed to them in every way he knew how. And so he might be discouraged. Ezekiel 18.32 gives us kind of the disposition of the Lord. What is the Lord thinking about these things? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Jesus only wanted them to repent, to believe that he was who he said he was. And so he was certainly distraught by his rejection. And returning to this place of origin across the Jordan, you might see his ministry afresh. It was there that the people came to see John early in his ministry. They came out in droves and they were baptized, a baptism of repentance to acknowledge that they needed to repent of their sins and to believe in God. John baptized many people there. It was there that, in fact, Jesus was baptized. It was there that he was accepted, where people believed in him. It was there that the people, as Ezekiel 18 says, turned from their sin and found life. As we begin to close, I'm going to ask a question. How will you respond to the rejected shepherd? How, how will you respond to this rejected shepherd? I told you this passage gives us three scenes of rejection that summon us to accept the shepherd. And in each scene, we're given a unique facet of his shepherding ministry. The first scene summons us to accept that Jesus is a miraculous shepherd. And he was a miraculous shepherd. He said in verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you going to stone me? The second scene summons us to accept that Jesus is a qualified shepherd. We discovered that in verses 34 through 38. Jesus has every right to call himself the Son of God. He was commissioned by God. He was sent from God. Scripture proves it and his works prove it. He was a miraculous shepherd. He was a qualified shepherd. In the third scene, we see something else. I'm struggling a little bit with the, the word to use here, but I'm going to call him a, a physical shepherd. He's a physical shepherd. You might say he's a human shepherd, but it doesn't quite capture it. Yes, he is human, but he's also divine. And so, calling him a physical shepherd. He was human. He is the Son of God. He was physical in the sense that he chose to leave the spiritual realm and come into the physical realm. That's what the Jesus did in, in coming from heaven and coming down and he came into this physical world and so he is a physical shepherd. And you realize that once he did that, once he added a, a human body to himself, that that human body has, is always and will be always attached to him. There's not a future day in which somehow the body of Jesus will, will be separated from him. He'll disintegrate. No. The decision to, to stoop down was one that would be perpetual, that would be forever. That body is always attached to him. Yes, it's a resurrected body now, but still, he is a physical shepherd, a physical shepherd. 
And so Jesus entered this world knowing full well that this prophecy hung over his head. This banner hung over his head. He would be despised and rejected by men. Jesus is a miraculously qualified shepherd who knows exactly what it feels like to be despised and rejected. He knows exactly what that feels like because that was the banner that flew over his head that that captures maybe more than anything else his ministry, that he was rejected by his people, that he was rejected by all people, the closing scene of which is his death on the cross. And so he knows what it feels like to be rejected, to be despised. We started with Hebrews 4.15 in our communion time. That verse says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Although Christ is a miraculously qualified shepherd, it would be a mistake to think he's removed from our human experience. He's not removed. He was also a physical shepherd, a shepherd who knows the human condition experientially, having sympathy for us. So how will you respond to the rejected shepherd? Well, I'll close with Hebrews 4.16, which says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.